Mic on. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. We now present for your pleasure. Mic off. Mic on. Thursday, February 4th, nighttime. Winter Blind Camp Meeting 2021. Enjoy. Mic off. Hello everyone. We'd like to welcome you to the 2021 Winter Camp Meeting for the Blind and Physically Challenged. We've had a good week this week. This is Thursday evening. And due to COVID-19, Camp Asabo is closed down. So we are having this virtual camp meeting for the blind at the Holly Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're going to have Pastor Fred Calkins continue his series tonight on faith, on Hebrews 11. We're sure glad that we have him here with us. And at this time, we'll have Pam Nielsen have the song service. Well, good evening. You're going to start hearing some of these songs again because I'm running out of songs to sing here. We're going to do them over. How about I've got joy, joy, joy in my heart. That is page eight and nine. Done. 
Jesus down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart to stay. So happy, so very happy. I've got the love of Jesus in my heart. And I'm so happy, so very happy. I've got the love of Jesus in my heart. I've got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart today. I'm so happy, so very happy. I've got the love of Jesus in my heart. And I'm so happy, so very happy. I've got the love of Jesus in my heart. Amen. Let's see. How about, let's sing Above All again. Page 26. Twenty-six. <laughs> yeah, that's a. Uh, <laughs> that might be in your songbook. <laughs> okay. Above all powers, above all minds, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all death and all the threats of the earth, <laughs> there's no way to measure what you're worth. Crucified, laid behind a stone, you live to die, rejected and alone, like a rose, trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were 
world began above all kingdoms above all thrones above all wonders the world has ever known all wealth and treasures of the earth there's no way to measure what you're worth. Crucified, laid behind a stone, you live to die, rejected and alone, <clears throat> like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. Amen. Thank you. Oh, theme song. Chord 12. Jesus, sinless is he, Father impute his life unto me, my life of scarlet, my sin and woe, cover with his life, whiter than snow. Thank you, Pam. Appreciate you being here. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for watching over us some more. We thank you for being with us step by step in our lives. We ask that thou bless us now as we participate and, and worship thee. We ask that thou be with pastor as he presents our message on faith. May each of us get that faith in our heart so that we might be able to serve you better every day. We ask that thou be with David as he does the special music or Pamela as she does the special music. 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Salvation is one. 
Amen. Once again, it's all about Jesus. We want to welcome the pastor to continue on his series at this time. an interview. <laughs> and then I saw Rick here. I thought maybe he was the one who was going to be interviewed. But uh, I, that's all right. I'm ready. I, I'm very much ready. And especially right after that, that song. That's part of the Moses story, you know. The hiding in the cleft of the rock. Moses asked to see God and God said, well, can't do that. But um, here's what I'll do. I'll put you in this cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by, and I'll take my hand off, and you'll be able to see my backside, whatever that means. <laughs> but um, Moses' response was to recognize the goodness and grace of God from that experience. But let's get started with, with um, Hebrews 11. This is the longest chunk of Hebrews 11. In some ways, Abraham has nearly as much real estate, but we used, we separated out the Sarah and the Isaac parts, so Moses is probably the biggest. Let's pray. We seek your face, Lord. We want to know you. We thank you for the story of Moses, who was clearly a prophet who was extraordinarily close to you. We recognize that as we study this story, we can learn another aspect of what it is to become like Jesus. In his, in his name we pray. Amen. You know, I usually like to read this Hebrews part first, and it's just a synopsis of the whole message, so that's okay. Then we know, we know where it's flowing. Hebrews 11, verse 23 through 29. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. What a story. Clearly it indicates Moses was special right from his birth. You may remember that story. I uh, was observing that to some extent the first five books of the Bible are an autobiography of Moses. The uh, first book of the Bible, Genesis, which we've just about concluded, Genesis gives his backstory, his parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, all the way out to Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve, <laughs> all the way back. That's that's Genesis' story. But Exodus, we start out with his birth, and at the end of Deuteronomy, we'll get to his death, and we'll probably look at all those by the time we're done. The, uh, 
Egyptians had made a marked change. You know, we talked about Joseph, and under Joseph, the Israelites were a favored people. They were given really a nice position there. The land of Goshen was the best land, and that's where they were settled. But um, in time, there arose a pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And he looked at those Israelites, and he said, they're getting pretty numerous. Well, yes, they were. They were multiplying very fast. And he said, what if they decided to take over? Well, such coups are quite common. In fact, in Egypt, we find coups. The, uh, the Cushites from the south came over and took over Egypt for a dynasty or two. Um, just that, that's a very real thing that he was worried about, except we know that God had other plans for the Israelites. They were enslaved for hundreds of years. Slavery is messy. Slavery is nasty. Slavery is bad. Pharaoh, seeing that the Israelites still kept increasing, decided he needed to do some limitation of their population. And that's a common thing. You, you start looking at history and you find the people in power try to keep their power by destroying the ones who seem to be growing. And so this king told the um, midwives, well, when those Hebrew babies are born, if it's a boy, throw it in the river and let it drown. Well, <laughs> the midwives didn't follow that direction. Why? That's as bad as abortion. That's, that's killing babies after they're born, and abortion's killing them before they're born. And uh, if Pharaoh had known how to do that, he probably would have done that too. But... Um, the um, midwives, they really didn't honor that instruction. But besides that, they told Pharaoh, oh, those Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women. Babies are born before I can get there. So there's, there's nothing I can do about it. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But, but that's the story they told him. And the record is that God blessed those midwives, that they had big families too. So... Uh, Quite a, quite a little bit of story. But Moses' experience doesn't say anything about the midwives involvement. It talks about his parents. His parents, Amram and Jochebed, when that baby was born, they just had a sense that this boy is special. And they said, we can't let this boy be killed. And so they kept him hidden in the house for the first three months. And I don't know how they kept the boy quiet. <laughs> I don't know how they kept the boy quiet, but I've heard stories about American Indians who trained their children to be very silent in their babyhood, so these things might be somehow possible, but by the time he was three months old, they said, this is getting a little untenable. We need to find another solution, and so they decided to build a basket boat and put the baby in the basket and put him in the river. See how they're following the, the king's instructions? King said, throw the baby boys in the river, so they put him in the river. <laughs> and they left Miriam, 12-year-old Miriam, to kind of keep an eye on her baby brother. And uh, I'm sure she watched with earnest prayer and didn't know what to think when she saw Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, come down to the river and see the basket boat and send one of her maids out to the river to bring that basket boat in. And look at the cute little baby. 
Miriam recognized that this lady wasn't ready to kill the baby. And so she eased up there and said, Would you like me to find somebody to nurse this baby for you? Three-month-old babies, they can't eat solid food. <laughs> need, need somebody to nurse it. And this has got to be a God thing. This princess said, sure, find somebody. And Miriam ran home, got her mother, and her mother came and said, yeah, I'll nurse this baby. <laughs> and right away, the, the um, princess says, well, you take care of this baby, and I'll pay you. Now, wouldn't that something to be paid to take care of your own kid? <laughs> I'll pay you. What a precious thing. And so sure enough, um, Jochebed got paid to take care of this boy. And did she ever take care of him? She didn't know how much time she would have. Turned out to be 12 years. Now that boy is getting to be a young man by then. And they improved every minute of that time. That boy had learned the story of his ancestors. I think that's where he knew the story of Genesis to be able to write it. He memorized all that stuff. He understood what it was to serve God. He understood that the religion of Egypt was idolatry. So, 12 years old, he gets into the palace and they start him on his high school and college education. And are they ever training him? They were training him to be the next pharaoh. There's no question about it. He was being trained to be the next pharaoh. So, he got military training so that he could be a general. He got... Um, Philosophical training, so he'd be able to recognize the sophistries of his advisors. He got um, training in religion because Pharaoh was, in, in title at least, the high priest of all of the gods. Now, there was another high priest for each one of the gods, but they all reported to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Pharaoh was the top of all these religions. It's quite common for kings who are in great power to want to be worshipped. You've read about that in other scriptural stories. And Pharaoh was to be worshipped. Moses did not go along with that very well. He sat in the classes. He listened to the stories. He heard their explanations. But when they said, and now you need to do this offering, he said, no, no, I, I won't do that. He drew the line at not worshiping false gods. He was very careful. It was for 28 years that he was being trained to be the leader of of Egypt. But uh, things came to a head when he was about 40. He'd been given this name, Moses, which means drawn out. But uh, somehow he had gotten the message, partly from his parents, partly from inspiration, that God was going to use him to deliver Israel from Egypt. And so here he is about 40 years old, and he's going out through the land and just kind of walking around, looking around his land, and feeling very successful and powerful and thinking that it's his job to rescue Israel. And so he sees an Egyptian beating up on an Israelite. And he looks around, and there's just the three of them there, himself, this mean Egyptian, and this oppressed Israelite. And Moses goes over there and kills the Egyptian. 
Now, remember, I told you he was trained in military arts. He, uh, he knew how to do this very quickly and quietly. <laughs> the, uh, those, those sorts of trainings are very well done, even in modern military. So uh, he killed him and buried him and thought everything was cool. Surely that Israelite's not going to squeal on him. Well, <laughs> when your life has been rescued, how can you keep from talking about it? And so he was talking about it among his Israelites. And, well, you know, you don't keep these things quiet. Once it starts to go, it just keeps on going. So another day, Moses is out. He sees a couple of Israelites fighting. And clearly one of them is in the wrong. And he comes here and says, brother... You shouldn't be treating your brother like that. We're family. And the Israelite in the wrong, trying to justify himself and trying to make himself look like he's okay, accuses Moses. What you going to do? Kill me like you did the Egyptian? <laughs> Moses knew this story has gone wild. And pretty soon he became aware that Pharaoh had heard it. Pharaoh was ready to kill him. And Moses split. Time to leave the country. Forty years old. We find that Moses' life breaks into three 40-year periods. These first 40 years, he's being trained in all the arts of Egypt to be a good, strong king. Well, some of that was useful, but much of it needed to be forgotten for the main job that God had for him. So he ran away. So we begin the second 40 years fleeing in disgrace. Exodus 2, verse 15, we have Pharaoh heard of this matter. He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, sat down by a well. <laughs> While he was there by the well, he uh, saw some shepherd girls bringing their flocks, and I'm sure he was reminded of the story of... Um, well, both Eliezer and uh, Jacob going by a well and watering or being watered by the shepherd girls and it being a good deal. And so he, being a very strong, healthy man, he says, well, here, let me do this. And he rolls this big rock off from the off from the well, and he helps the girls water their flocks when they get home. Their daddy says, you're home early. What happened? Oh, we met this Egyptian, <laughs> and we brought him home with us. <laughs> it wasn't long before Moses was married to one of these girls, Keturah. He busied himself at the work that, lie, that lay near. There's a lesson. Some people ask me, well, pastor, how do I know what God wants me to do? Well, he'll tell you. If he has something specific, he can make it abundantly clear. But um, a good practice is to be looking around at what is in your immediate situation and say, what can I do to help somebody? And so Moses busied himself in the work that lay around him. That work started with helping as a shepherd, but he also began to write down Scripture. Now, the uh, archaeologists and scientists study when writing began, and they have pretty well figured out that writing began, oh, with Moses <laughs> in that Sinai desert, <laughs> Arabian desert, where, where he was 
helping with these sheep. I believe that the first writing was Scripture, just like the first book that was printed was the Bible, Gutenberg Bible, uh, that God designed, God knew that it's time. People are not getting smarter. We're getting, we, we have some things to help us remember, and writing is one of them, and we've used a lot of computers to help us with that now. But God knew that we just weren't remembering the Bible stories like the generation of Moses and before. So he had Moses write it down while he was there in the desert. He wrote the book of Genesis. I believe he also wrote the book of Job. He also developed a habit of communion with God, connecting with God. And even though he remembered that God had told him, I've got a work for you to do to deliver Israel, he kind of salved his conscience and said, well, you know, I'm doing good. That, that really, that didn't, I tried and it didn't work out. I'm, I'm doing good with what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep on doing. And he kept on doing for 40 years. Very successful 40 years. But, um, and then God said, it's time, which begins, he's 80 years old now. <laughs> This begins the next 40 years of his life. What he'd been praying for all along, what he'd been preparing for all along, God says, now you're ready. Somehow, herding sheep had taught him more of what he needed to know to lead Israel than learning to be a general. It's a little bit profound. I have a pastor friend who told me, he said, I learned more about pastoring when I was a dairy farmer than I did when I went to the seminary. <laughs> I understand what he's saying. Um, people need guidance, careful, gentle guidance. But the, um, the way God called him, very, very impressive story. Oh, I didn't write down that, that verse when I thought I had. Um, yeah, I, I, my marker go, goes a little bit too far ahead. Moses saw a bush in the desert with flames coming out of it, but the bush remained green and lush. And he said, that's not the way fire works. Fire burns things up. It doesn't just hover around and leave the leaves green and healthy. So he said, I need to go look that over. He was drawn to this burning bush. When he got somewhere near close, he heard a voice from that bush saying, Take off your shoes. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Moses realized he was in the presence of God. He took off his shoes, probably got on his knees as he's in this presence of God. This was, I believe, the first, and let me use a $10 word here, theophany, an experience where Moses hears God and sees the evidence of God. Now, he had many more of those through his life, but I believe that was the first one when God said, okay, I'm coming close to you. I'm calling you to be a prophet, and I'm telling you what to do. Moses didn't like everything that he was told, but he recognized that he must obey the sweet voice of God. He had an interaction with him. He even asked God what his name was, and he was told, my name is I Am. And Moses... Okay, you are the self-existent one. You are the God I want to serve. He had other names for him. Um, Elohim is one of the names we find used in Genesis. And we have this, this Yahweh name a little bit too. 
but he recognized, I'm talking with the God. And God told him what to do. He said, go back to Egypt. And Moses fussed. He tried to get out of it. He said, I, I don't remember the language. I made your tongue. I'll give you the language. <laughs> what can you say about a God like that? <laughs> he, he tried every which way. And finally, God said, okay, I've already got Aaron on his way. He'll help you. You, you tell Aaron, and Aaron will speak to Pharaoh, and this will all get done. Well, Aaron wasn't the best help, but he was a big help most of the time. When they got to Egypt, and we've got to move the story along, <laughs> but it's such a story. When they got to Egypt, uh, a number of signs for Pharaoh and some signs also for the Israelite leaders, and through Moses, God handed Pharaoh ten plagues, ten plagues, ten devastating experiences for the whole land that convinced Pharaoh that God was powerful. It was enough to convince the Israelites that it was time to go too. Now, they fussed and complained for the next 40 years, but, but they were willing to leave, partly because of these. First plague was water becoming blood. Second plague was, frag, was frogs. Frogs in Egypt were worshipped as sacred. So here these people are having the frogs come into their houses, coming into their cooking pots, getting into their beds, and they can't kill them. It's against the rules to kill these things. I was over in India once, and I'd heard about these sacred cows. And I see the cows walking down the street and stopping at a, at a vendor who's got some, some vegetables out, and the cow decides to eat some, and the vendor... <laughs> can move it back, but he can't swat the cow away. That's against the rules. It's, they're sacred. They're sacred. These frogs were sacred. Can you imagine what you do when the frogs get into your soup? <laughs> oh, oh, it was messy. But Pharaoh said, please, get rid of these. And Moses prayed, and God killed all the frogs. Killed them all at once. They had to stack them up in piles, and what a stink. What a stink. But then came lice. Now, <laughs> if you think frogs are bad, mm, I haven't had lice. I've had treatment to protect me from getting lice, but I've never found any lice on me. But, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's come close enough. It's been in my church. It's been in my church school. Yeah, we deal with it when, when it comes. Those, all three of those plagues infected the Israelites as well as the Egyptians. But with the next plague, God said, I'm going to put a difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites. They needed some discipline so that they would learn to trust me, but now I'm going to make a change so that they can recognize that I'm the one who brings blessing. So the next the plague number four was flies. Big flies, venomous flies. Their bite hurt a lot. It was a mess. After that, fifth, fifth plague was, they call it murian, M-U-R-R-A-I-N. I, I am not particularly familiar with that, but it explains what was going on. The cattle, a lot of the cattle died. Apparently not all of them, but a lot of them died. And that really starts hurting the economy, folks, when your livestock are dying. And after that, it was boils on the people, and that was very painful. Then for plague number seven, 
Moses said to Pharaoh, you better bring the animals that are still alive into your barns because the hail is going to kill them. And Pharaoh says, eh, I'm not believing that. Well, some of the Egyptians said, I'm listening. And they brought their cattle into the barns and, and rescued them. The ones that were out, those big chunks of ice falling from the sky killed people and cattle. It was a mess. And now the whole country is in a disaster zone. And everybody's trying to get Pharaoh to kick those guys out of here. This is... This is we, all of the wealth that we accumulated by this slave labor has already been destroyed by these plagues that have come. It got worse. After the hail came the locusts. The hail had beat the crops all to the ground and killed a lot of animals, and the locusts ate whatever they could find. And I've read stories of locusts that plagued us here in America, and they would even eat the axe handles. So it wasn't just green stuff. It got really messy. And these locusts, the record is that it was worse locusts than have ever happened before or since. Once the locusts were gone, a thick darkness, darkness so deep that it could be felt. I believe it was also cold. And with that, Pharaoh said to Moses, you're never going to see my face again. If you see my face again, you're going to die. Well, Moses says, whatever you say. <laughs> he still went back again and warned him about the death of the firstborn. He told Pharaoh that the firstborn sons of everybody in the nation was going to die. And he told the Israelites that if they did not want their firstborn children also to die, they needed to do a special ceremony. The ceremony included killing a kid or goat, a, a, a baby lamb or a baby goat, that they would kill it and they would take the blood from that and put it on the doorposts of their house. We need to have Jesus not only die for us, he already's done that, he's given us that gift, but we must allow him, his high priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, he applies His blood in our life, cleansing us from sin, not merely forgiving our sin, but giving us victory over sin. That's the work of Jesus in the most holy place. And that was the symbolism in this uh, Passover experience. The blood must be applied. It's, I keep saying this thing, righteousness by faith, but as a righteousness by faith, that works. That is, we demonstrate our faith by what we do. Well, with, with that whole scenario, largely before the death of the firstborn, but even subsequent, God told the Israelites to go to those Egyptians that had been enslaving them and ask for payment. They plundered the Egyptians. They took all the money, all the jewels, all the special stuff that these Egyptians had, and the Egyptians are paying them. Here, let me give you this stuff. They got paid for their 400 years of labor by what the Egyptians gave them. And many of the uh, treasures that they were given ended up being a part of the tabernacle. But um, then Moses began to lead the Israelites as they left Egypt. What an experience. Miracle after miracle after miracle. 
Can you imagine the scene at the Red Sea? Mountain on one side, sea on the other side, and Pharaoh's army coming behind them. I know. You would have thought that Pharaoh, once his son has died, and, well, a large percentage of his soldiers have died, that he would say, we need to just let those folks go. But no, Pharaoh, in his greed, musters what armor he has, gets folks in chariots, and goes chasing after Israelites. We're going to go bring them back. Well, God has already manifested Himself with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. It became a pillar of fire to light the way for the Israelites, a pillar of cloud to obscure the way for the Egyptians. So the Egyptians couldn't find the Israelites. Meanwhile, the Israelites are looking at this sea and mountain and saying to Moses, how can we go anywhere? We're trapped. We should have stayed in Egypt. Moses says, watch to see the hand of God. And under the inspiration of heaven, he walks down to the Red Sea and raises his staff. He still carried that shepherd's staff that he had been using for 40 years. He raised it over the sea, and God parted the sea. It says that the water stood up on both sides, and there was a way that they could walk through on dry land. The Israelites walked through the Red Sea. Once they were through, God's cloud dissipated enough that the Egyptians could see where the Israelites had gone, and they said, after them, guys, after them, we're going to get them. And so they rushed through with water on each side. You'd think they would be smarter than this, but they rushed through with the water held up on each side, and uh, when they get about halfway through, God starts letting the water come up through the sand at the bottom. And the wheels of the chariots are getting stuck, and the people are finding it hard going. It's not hard to walk on on well-packed sand, but when it's mushy sand, it becomes quicksand. And it was getting really dangerous for them. So they all get into the middle of the sea, and then God lets the waters come back with a rush. (laughs) And the Egyptians all died. Remember Pharaoh had said, Moses, you're not going to see my face again? Um, Right. (laughs) Not because Moses was going to die, but because Pharaoh died. Oh, and then the rock, the water. First time Moses was told to strike the rock. The second time he was supposed to speak to it, but instead he hit it. The The rock that provided water was a symbol of Christ who died once for us. So Moses' striking of the rock confused the symbol we find God supplying food. The uh, manna came, a triple miracle with that manna. Genesis, uh, excuse me, Exodus 16 tells that story. For 40 years, God fed them with manna. Every morning when they went out, there was the manna, and it tastes like wafers with coriander seed. It was just a tasty food, and they would gather about a quart for every one of them, every person. If they waited too late in the day to get it, it it had dried and there was nothing there. But if they went out promptly, if they were if they would try to keep it overnight, it would spoil. Maggots would come in it. It was really ugly and messy. So they didn't dare keep it overnight. Had to go up fresh every morning. There's a lesson on this. You need to get your devotional time fresh every morning. There's a real strong lesson on that. But then something special happened on Friday. There was more manna. 
And when you start collecting, you found that you could get two quarts for everybody. And they said, what am I going to do with this? Moses said, you're supposed to save a quart for tomorrow because you're not going to be going out for manna on Sabbath. What a lesson on Sabbath keeping. <laughs> of course, somebody tried to keep it over. Uh, no, they tried to keep it over and it's spoiled. Well, now somebody's trying to go out on Sabbath morning to see if there's any manna. And they get scolded very soundly for going out because it's not there and they'd been told not to go. So they were acting out a distrust of God. So that was pretty serious stuff. Twice God supplied quail to them because they said, we're getting tired of eating this vegetarian food. We want some meat. And God said, okay. <laughs> he gave them quail. But when God does something, he doesn't necessarily just, just give you enough. Pray that God only give you enough. The, there's more danger in having too much than there is in having just barely or not quite enough. Um, better to be a little bit hungry than to be overfed. So, so they gluttonized themselves on, on these quail, and many people died from that. Um, enemies attacked them. First was Amalek, and... Joshua was sent out to, to fight Amalek, and Moses is standing up on the hill watching, and as long as Moses is raising his hands and praying for the people, they're winning. But when his arms get tired and they start to sag, then Amalek seems to start winning. And so finally, Aaron and her, friends of Moses, they recognize what's going on, and they find a rock for Moses to sit on, and then one on each side, they hold his arms up so that Israel, Israel can win this battle, and they do uh, later, and I move quickly through this story. When they get to the, near the promised land, both Sihon, king of Ammon, and Og, king of Bashan, come out against them, and some of these are giants. They're, they're warriors and giants, extra tall, and they're the ones that 40 years before the Israel was afraid of. But now, those ones who were complaining and fearful have died off. And so, Israel attacks these two countries that are east of the Jordan River and takes them over. Um, another thing that happens during this 40 years is the Ten Commandments. God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel it's given at least three times to them. We have the thunder from Mount Sinai where they hear God's voice, and Israel says, uh, Moses, this is a bit intimidating. You go and, and listen to God, and you just tell us. We don't want to hear his voice. I think they sold themselves short by that decision, but Moses did go, and he did get the tablets written on both sides, and uh, so he took those tablets and brought them down, but then... Israel, while he was 40 days up in the mountain, fasting, communing with God, seeking God's face, Israel got involved in idolatry at the foot of the mountain. When Moses got down there, he said, you've broken the commandments. And with that, he smashed the rocks that he'd been given that had the Ten Commandments printed on them. That was a very powerful symbol that they had broken the commandments. And what a mess that made. That's when the tribe of Levi got elevated to be the priests because they quickly assembled themselves on Moses' side 
to execute those who were most involved in the orgies that was a part of this false worship. Moses oversaw the building of the tabernacle, that desert movable church building. It was the clearest representation of the heavenly sanctuary. Three temples were built to kind of replace, take the place of this, this wilderness sanctuary tabernacle. Solomon's temple was the grandest. The, we call it the post-exilic temple, the temple that was built after Israel had been in Babylonian captivity. That was probably the shabbiest. It was smaller. But then Herod rebuilt that temple. It took him 14 years to rebuild it, but uh, he rebuilt it and made it really quite a showcase. Not as nice as what Solomon had done, but it was quite the showcase. It was one of his most ambitious building projects. They, in all three of these, they tried to upgrade and glorify the, the elements of the tabernacle service, but it really served to dilute and confuse. So it, that's just the way it goes, the way it went. Um, a significant part of the story that helps us understand Moses better, when he had spent time with God, his face had a glow. Sometimes that glow, it gets translated as a horn when you're reading some translations of the Scripture. But what it's talking about is the glow of the presence of God that has infused itself into Moses' face. I have met people who had a, a peace on their face, but not light shining from them. I, I have met some very godly men and women who tend to have some seasoning on them, older than I am. But, but you could see they have spent their time with God. Um, Moses is called the meekest man who ever lived, and we wrestle with that, especially since he penned those words, and we say, how's that in being meek? Well, he was inspired to say these things that are written, and uh, his meekness is demonstrated in his trusting in God even when people were criticizing and complaining. He, he was attacked how many times and how many ways. His brother and sister attacked him one time. Um, God took a hand in that one, allowing Miriam to have instant leprosy, which was healed quickly, but she still had to spend a week outside the camp because leprosy makes one unclean. Um, Nadab and Abihu, his nephews, offered strange fire on the altar, and they were killed. Um, Koradath and Abiram tried to stage an insurrection and tried to get all the people to uh, criticize Moses. And Moses, I, I can just picture this. Moses says, well, you guys and your clan, you stay with your tents and the rest of us will stand back and watch and we'll see what God does. And then he said, if God allows you to live, then we know that what you're saying and doing is not wrong. But if God does a new thing, opening up the earth and swallowing you, then we'll know that what you're doing is wrong. Sure enough, once he'd uttered those words, there was an earthquake that just opened up a place 
underneath where the tents of those rebels were and their families, and it all went down into the earth, and then it closed up behind it. They were gone. What a statement. Moses was right, and they were in the wrong. Poignant story. Let me finish with this one. Uh, his death. Moses has lived a good life, a strong, long life, and he has chapter 33 of Deuteronomy. It gives a blessing where he echoes the blessing that uh, Jacob had given to his 12 sons, 13, and now he, Moses, gives a blessing to each of the tribes of Israel. And then in 34, so he said goodbye. He is 120 years old now. That third 40-year period is coming to its end. And Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan. Verse 5, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And God buried him in a valley in the land of Moab. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim. He could still see very well at 120 years. Nor was his natural vigor abated. And the children of Israel wept for him for 30 days. That's why you know. That's the pattern that established how long we mourn for political leaders who die, 30 days, because that was established time there. Now, Jude, verse 9, tells us that God claimed Moses, resurrecting him and taking him to heaven. We have also in New Testament, when Moses appears with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So we know that Moses, he took that dirt nap for a while, but we don't know how long. I like Randy's phrase, dirt nap. Yes, he got buried. Of course he got buried. But God did not leave him there. God needed Moses as a representative of those who will go to glory through death first and then be resurrected. God needed to do that for our understanding. He is the, the parallel to our study of Enoch. Some of us are going to go to glory without seeing death. Some of us will go to glory after we've had a little bit of a dirt nap. But both are rescued by the blood, by the grace of Jesus for His glory. It's okay. God is well able to raise us up. We can trust Him. It is, it's for us to put our whole trust in Jesus and let Him do in us for His glory. Gracious Lord. We thank you for the story of Moses, a man of faith, a man of courage, a man of boldness. We recognize that he was indeed your prophet, the man of the hour. And we know that even today you're calling some of us to speak the word in season, to touch hearts and lives for good. We invite you to use us to finish this work so we can go home. We would see Jesus. This is all we're needing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're welcome. Our next meeting will be 7 a.m. in the morning. So have a good rest. Thank you. Good night.
mic on. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you found this a blessing. Thanks for listening. Until the next episode, bye-bye. Mic off.